to 1 John chapter 5. We have now reached the last chapter. We we have seen that John has a preoccupation with love. That believers are known for their philanthropy, not just their good works, but literally love of man. And we have seen that the two loves are inseparable in a believer. Love for God and love for man. And not just fellow man, though that is true, but for the believer. So you have Philotheus, the love of God and of Philadelphia, the love of brother or sister. But yes, we ought to have philanthropy, the love of man. We ought to love our neighbor. But he does specify who particularly our neighbor is in the church of Jesus Christ. First John chapter 5 begins with an important evidence that we are born again. It's a doctrinal evidence. We've seen at least three, excuse me, three areas where we have evidence of being a believer. You have the area of morality, doing righteousness, social, the social aspect of loving one another, and the doctrinal aspect, believing certain. Truths, all the truths of the Bible, but certain truths, especially of Jesus Christ. So notice, he again brings us into the doctrinal category. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Messiah, is born of God. And basically the rest of it says, and everyone that loveth the parent loveth also the offspring. That's essentially what it's saying in the spiritual realm. If we love the parent, we will love the offspring. And so it is in our physical families we trust that sibling rivalry ought not to be so in the church of Jesus Christ, though it is certainly in the world. So, a question that I might ask at the outset, does belief cause birth or vice versa? It seems to say that belief causeth birth from verse 1. But another question I say is, were you born because because you breathed or did you breathe because you were born? Well, it seems to say that we, that we were born because we breathed. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And it seems to be saying that because you believed, you were born. But, that's not what it says. Literally, Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ 
has been born of God. You see the difference? Just like we would say everyone who is breathing has been born of a mother. And not vice versa. In other words, the permanent new birth has continuous evidence. A believer, a a Christian believes because he has been born. He is not born because he believes. So, believeth, you, you can see there, the English word is present tense. Whosoever believeth, is believing that Jesus is the Christ. Now, is seems to say present tense, but the verb born of God is a perfect tense, which means it occurred in the past and the, the results continue on into the present and into the future. Whosoever is believing that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. For instance, if we said, if I said the uh, the door is closed, you know that means was it just closed or does it mean when was it closed? But if I said the door has been closed, then we're taking it further into the past. It's been closed for a while. And we're seeing here that John is careful to understand that there are evidences, there are fruits of being born again. And one very important fruit is in the doctrinal category. And he's already stated several things about Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, if a believer will acknowledge that Jesus is... Jesus Christ came in the flesh. See that in chapter 4 and verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, who's inside a believer. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Well, one might say, well, of course, Jesus is man. But John was dealing with the Gnostics who could not believe that, that the Son of God would ever take flesh. That it's impossible for, for, for God to, uh, to take human flesh because flesh is, is inherently evil. But John was indicating that the incarnation of God is a key doctrine of the Bible. That we could not be saved unless God became incarnate and paid for our sins. And so, in, in one sense, you have to believe in the humanity of Christ. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you'll believe in the humanity of Christ, not just His deity. But His deity is important. Chapter 4 and verse 15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him and He in God. And so not only do we believe in His humanity, that He's flesh, He's man, but He's divine first of all. His pre-existence. He is the Son of God. And now, in chapter 5, verse 1, seems to put them both together. If you're a Christian, you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, which means that He's both God and man. If you 
trace the, the teaching of the Messiah, the Christ. He will be both God and man. Remember Psalm 110, Jesus put the Pharisees on notice. He said, whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, he's the son of David. You're half right and you're half wrong. He is man, but did you know, did you not know that the Bible teaches that he is divine? For David said, David said, Lord, uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We know the first one is God. Well, who's the second one? Who's my Lord? He was talking to his descendant, who would become his descendant. But he understand he was his ascendant when he called him Lord. And so the doctrinal teaching of the Messiah is that the Messiah will be both divine and human. And that's what John is indicating in chapter 5 and verse 1. Now it doesn't mean that a simple uh, doctrinal confession is all you need. It seems to say that whosoever confesses. So, okay, if I just say it, then I must be born again. Well, the, confess, the word confess means to agree wholeheartedly with. It's something that's in your heart. Faith in your heart. Belief is in the heart of a, of a true Christian. So it's not talking about a simple creedal affirmation. Because there are people that affirm the deity of Christ, or the humanity of Christ, or the fact that Jesus is the Christ, and affirm doctrinal truths. But it's one thing to have a, a verbal affirmation, but there needs to be more than that. There needs to be a mental assent and a heart consent. Remember, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord to be Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see that? That there has to be more than a surface belief. There will be many that will have just surface beliefs. And that's a challenge to all of us. Do you have a surface, just simply a, a creedal affirmation of these things? Or do you have a heart Conviction and belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does here say a Christian believes something. He believes the Bible. It's the doctrinal category. The Lord has already told us we are moral people. We do righteousness, chapter 2 and verse 29. A born-again believer will do right. Then you have the social category. A born-again believer will love God and love his brethren, her brethren. And then you have the doctrinal category. So you, you have the checks and balances seeing that John gives us in his epistle. Of the, the, um, the moral, the social, and the doctrinal categories. And so John is so wise, and isn't the Lord wise to give us all these checks and balances from different directions? That one might have just a, an affection toward Christians for whatever reason, but his belief might not, he might disbelieve some of the doctrines of the Bible, or might not be living a moral life. In other words, you can 
be socially, you, you can love, and that love can be immoral toward a Christian. But your love, in order for your love to be moral, it's got to be doctrinally directed. You don't love, uh, if you're married, you don't love another woman like you love your wife, and vice versa. But we all love each other's brothers and sisters in a certain way. And so there's always checks and balances. Doctrine and devotion, duty and devotion, they're all circulated here in 1 John. And remember, the word born of God, you find that in at least six places in 1 John. And again, 2.29, one who's born again does right. In other words, he's consistently walking in God's Word, doing the truth. Chapter 3, verse 9, the negative, he does not practice sin. And that's also, that idea is also in chapter 5, verse 18, he sinneth not. In other words, he's not practicing sin. He may sin, but he continues to appeal to the blood of Christ. And then the middle of the five different ones is love for God and love for brothers, chapter 4, verse 7. Then you have believing certain doctrines, chapter 5, verse 1. And notice in chapter 5, verse 4, the final, the fifth reference, I should say, uh, and the fifth thought is the believer overcomes the world. And we'll look at that perhaps just briefly this afternoon. So you see, love is in the middle. You have morality doing righteousness at the top, love in the middle, and doctrine at the end of these references. The three categories of morals, the social category, and the doctrinal category. And John is saying, look, you need to, you need to give these evidences if you're a born-again believer. But love is the central evidence. And John just keeps coming back to love for God and love for for your brother and sister, and even for mankind in general, which seems to indicate that perhaps these these um, these heretics had doctrinal statements. They they had creeds, but they didn't have any doc. They didn't have any devotion. They didn't have any heart. They honored God with their mouths, but their hearts were far from them. They mistreated true believers. If they didn't follow their heresies and they didn't follow their teachings, that believers were excused. So obedience to God, love for Him, and belief in His Word are very important. Today there seems to be such an overemphasis of love and at the expense of doctrine, but we have to be careful that we don't have an underestimate, underemphasis of love. Doctrine at the expense of love, we have to be careful. There's, there's, there's the, the, the obvious imbalance on both sides. Love to the neglect of doctrine and even doctrine to the neglect of love where the Lord emphasizes both doctrine and love. These two loves are inseparable, love for God and love for man. 
And John seems to have an obsession with a believer loving another believer, but his preoccupation is justifiable. He's teaching that your love for God will lead to your love for man, and your love for man will be reflected by your love for God. One man said it this way, each love demonstrates the genuineness of the other and reinforces it. Each love, that is love for God and love for man, demonstrates the genuineness of the other and reinforces it. But both of those loves evidence the fact that we're born of God. Because it says, notice, everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So if you love the parent, you'll love the offspring. But yet John uses the other uh, argument earlier in his book. You can't love the parent unless you love the offspring. But now he's saying, if you love the parent, you'll love the offspring. But you see how they're reciprocal in nature. He's not giving circular reasoning. He's giving checks and balances. I say I love God. Well, how are you treating your brother? So I'm, if, you, if you're treating your brother and sister with love and with a forgiving spirit, then that may seem indeed to indicate that you have a love for God, that you love your brother and sister because God first loved you and you began to love Him. It is important that we show love on a, a um, horizontal basis as well as love on a vertical basis. So, all who are loving the one who causes the new birth love also the one having been born of God. That's what it's saying in the second part of verse 1. So we're not only born to believe, we're born again to love. We're born to believe and we're born to love. A special love for Believers is a comfort to the born-again believer. Do you have a special love for true Christians? If you meet a Christian, does your heart just draw out an affection? This is my brother. No matter what language they speak, no matter you know, what they look like, what color skin they have, if they're a brother, isn't there something special? I know that Christians ought to have a... You know, when you meet a Jew, you can't help but thinking of to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, in the old days, they, they always sought to f- find Jewish neighborhoods first when they evangelized a town or a city. I'm reading the life of uh, the diary of Andrew Bonner, and they sent Bonner and, and, and McShane to Jerusalem to, to see the ministries that they might be able to, to uh, get involved in. But... They, in Scotland, were always seeking to reach the Jew. They were taking it literally. Somehow we have thought that that was yesteryear. But whenever we meet a Jew, we can't help but think, well, maybe this is, this is the beginning of what the Lord will do in that nation one day. There's a special place there should be in our hearts for God's people. Shouldn't they? Shouldn't it? You remember when Lydia was saved, as recorded in Acts chapter 16? She wanted to, she wanted to, to test 
the, um, the love of Paul and Silas, remember? In verse 15 it says, If you have judged me to be a believer in the Lord, enter into my house and remain. <laughs> you see what she's saying here? The word judged is in the perfect tense. If you have, if you have decided that I have been born again, and I'm now a born-again believer in the Lord, enter into my house and remain. And it says, and she urged us. And the word is, she urged us strongly. Now you have a few questions. Certainly some, some things to unpack here. The first thing she was doing was, if you really believe that I'm a Christian now, a born-again Christian, then you accept my hospitality. And apparently they were a little bit reluctant. I don't know why they were reluctant. There are several reasons. I don't think it was because, well, she's a woman and we're men. There is that reluctance that's important in our day. Yes, in any day. But she had probably a husband, servant. She, she had other males in the house. I don't think that was the, that was the key. My take on it, I could be wrong, is Paul knew that he was creating some danger in the city. And it surely turned out that way later. Remember then that, that uh, woman filled with demons was saved and it caused all kinds of trouble. They were thrown into prison and beaten and they led the jailer to the Lord. So he might have been sensing danger and he didn't want to bring this into her home. She was a businesswoman. You know, she was a Proverbs 31 woman now. And he didn't want to affect that. But whatever the reason, she sensed that they were, you know, thank you. But maybe it was simply because we don't want to be a burden to you. We didn't come to Philippi to be a burden upon your finances and upon your, you know, your household. But she said, look, now push has come to shove. If you don't take my hospitality, you don't think I'm a Christian. <laughs> How could they refuse? They had to take her because the word urge there is the word as a strong word to constrain. It's the same word used in Luke twenty four twenty nine, and Josiah was kind enough to read that again to me where remember the two men on the road, or it could have been a man and his wife, on the road to Emmaus, uh the Lord revealed himself to them after they were all discouraged and and uh he taught them from the scriptures the things about himself, their hearts burned. It says that he appeared like you know, I'll see you later. You, you go to your home and I'm, I'll go somewhere else. And it says they constrained him to come over to their house. Now, I don't know how they constrained him. If you think that we're Christians, no, I don't think they did it that way. But it, it was a strong constraint. I don't know if they both got on either side and said, please don't go anywhere. You know, you're the Lord and, and we need you in our home. We need some more teaching. But it's, it's a strong urge. And that's what she did. She had another, perhaps they said several times, no, we don't want to be a burden. Yes, and finally she used what broke the, the, the you know, what do they call that? The, the straw that broke the camel's back. How did I get there? It's the same word used in the kingdom of God. Many are, uh, the kingdom of God causes violence and the violent take it by force. In other words, there are times when the message of the gospel so grips somebody, he's got to be saved now because he realizes the danger of being lost any longer. 
I remember feeling that in, in the Faith Baptist Church in, in Morgantown. I remember saying to myself, I can't leave here unless I get changed. I didn't just come here to go to church. I know the Lord's led me here, but I'm, I'm a sinner. That's how I was feeling. Like, how, now what? There's got to be a change in my life by this message. I'm not just here to, you know, in a moral sense. And the Lord indeed, I felt like I wanted to, I wanted to violently take the kingdom of God and not let, not leave this place thinking I'll never come back again and I'll never be faced with these same truths and consequences. And so it is. Um, now, where, what was my point in going to Lydia? I have seen your moments, and they seem to be increasing all the time. But um, we want to have evidences that we're true believers. And we want to be able to convince others that we're true believers. Because it's important that it says here that a true believer will be loved by other believers. You see that everyone that is that loves the one who is the parent will love the offspring. So if I'm an offspring, I want another offspring to acknowledge that I'm an offspring. I would be very concerned if whole you know a large percentage of true Christians doubted my Christianity, doubted my sincerity and call as a minister. That's why it's important that we lay hands when people when elders lay hands on, on young men. It's it's not saying that there's anything important about the elders or any power in their laying on of hands, but it's saying we acknowledge your calling. We believe you're a you're a born again Christian, and we acknowledge your calling. And we want other Christians to acknowledge our Christianity. It's a, again a check and balance. We want God to acknowledge it but we want His church to acknowledge it. It's not a light thing. And so Lydia used strong persuasion to get the evangelists to receive her hospitality. So it's not a simple verbal affirmation that makes someone a Christian. Doctrine does matter though. Doctrine is a catalyst to devotion and to obedience. That's why we do have confessions, by the way, in catechisms, because they are important. They do state what we believe in our hearts. And we say, basically, in, as far as our love for God, I have been saved from hell, therefore I, I do love God. I love Him because He first loved me. And then we also say, there are others that I acknowledge that have been saved from hell too. They're my brothers and they're my sisters. And so may I encourage you, when you meet a true believer, to encourage them that, look, I can sense that God has worked in your heart, that we have, we have camaraderie in a spiritual level. That can be a real encouragement to a believer. But when we can't sense that, someone should respect it. That, look, if I have some experienced believers that are doubting my state, as a Christian, maybe I should think twice about that for in the multitude of counselors and safety. And again, John keeps, keeps giving checks and balances. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. 
All right, so earlier he said, if you love God, you'll love the children of God. See that in in verse 1? If you love the parent, you'll love the offspring. But now someone asks him perhaps, well, how do I know that I love God and I love his offspring? I mean, how do I... How do I know my love is real? How do I know my love is genuine? When we love God and keep His commandments. You see how they go together. In other words, when, when our love is directed by the Word of God, then we know that our Christianity is genuine. John usually worked in the opposite direction. That it, How can you love God if you don't love His people? And that's found, for instance, in chapter 4 and verse, well, we already saw it in verse 20, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. But John works in both directions. You can't love God if you don't love your brethren, and you can't love your brethren if you don't love God. But by this we are knowing that we are loving the children of God, who are previously called those who are born of God, whenever God we love. And the additional feature, in in other words, what he's saying is, you keep his orders. His commandments we are keeping. In other words, doctrine is the energy of obedience. God says, here's how you love me. It's not, go ahead and love the best you can. How? How do I love God and how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my brother? What's the guide? How do we know? So, I walk up to my neighbor's wife and give her a hug and kiss. Is that love? Well, it's lust because the Bible says you love your wife like that, not your neighbor's wife. You know what I'm saying? So you take commandments of God. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, the Bible says. So love is not indiscriminate. Love is discriminate. How do we love God? We don't love other gods. There's, not, there's just positive and negative. How do we love God? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the precept of that is, Thou shalt have me as your God. So I love God by having no other gods, and I have Him as my God alone. So my love is unique. How do I love God? I don't bow down to any idols. I worship Him in spirit and in truth. I worship Him by prayer, by fasting, by meditation, by teaching, by preaching. You you follow me? I don't worship God by building idols. I don't have inventions of the means of worship. I don't have dances. We don't have dances on the platform. We don't worship God by transcendental meditation. We worship God according to His Word. And that's loving God. We keep His commandments. That's a show of our love. We love God by using His name reverently. We don't take it in vain. Taking God's name in vain is a show of hatred toward God, not love. We love God if we keep His time properly. If we keep the Sabbath holy. So if I profane the Sabbath, I'm showing a hatred toward God. I'm showing a disgust toward His Word, toward His rules. I'm saying, I don't like that rule. And there are many Christians that are saying, I don't like that rule. And it's convenient to say, it's retired now. It's Old Testament. 
We still have ten commandments. We don't have nine anymore. And now look at your love for man. How do we love man? If I disrespect my elder, that's hatred. Honor your father and mother. That's love. To honor someone. To reverence the gray head. And I'm, I'm not asking for reverence, but I asked the children on the bus, do I have salt or pepper? And the honest ones will say, you have all salt, Mr. O. There ain't no pepper anymore. Well, some of you make sure you, you, you keep the pepper with artificial ingredients. So maybe one of these days I will too. But we, we love by honoring our elders, our parents. Sixth commandment, we love with vitality. We don't take life. We don't injure life. We don't hurt people. We don't kill people with our tongues and with our eyes and with our jokes. We, we encourage people. We give life to people by loving them, by, by uh, speaking kindly to them, by facilitating their life. Seventh commandment, we love people purely. We and by the way, that works the reverse too, that a person should dress modestly so that they aren't tempting someone to hate them with lust, right? But we love people purely. We, we're careful how we direct our eyes and, and our minds and that we don't hand them things that pollute their souls, uh, magazines, and lead them to websites that are putrid. Eighth commandment, we love them by being generous. We don't steal. We're generous. We, we give. Ninth commandment, we love people with the truth. We don't lie to them. To lie to someone is, is, is to hate them. And the tenth commandment, we love people by being unselfish. By thanking God that He's blessed them and not being jealous that He hasn't blessed us. Those are evidence that we love others. So it's not merely sentimentalism, John is saying. We love God and keep His commandments. It's not mere sentimentalism or lovey-dovey affection. It's, it's true piety that love is, is pious. Love is according to the truth. It is... Um, They say earlier that, that love is prejudiced toward the truth. And His commandments, by the way, John says, are not grievous. The word grievous means heavy and burdensome or crushing. Lord Jesus said that the Pharisees' additions to the law were binding heavy burdens upon the people that they couldn't bear. They were overbearing hard to obey. Now, it's not saying that God's commandments are easy to obey. But He's saying they're not crushing when you obey them. They may be, and indeed they are enacting, but they're not exasperating. They may cross our wills and they might, they might demand that we come out of our comfort zones. And in that sense, they're not easy because they call us to account. They call our narcissism to account, don't they? They call our selfishness to account. 
Pay attention to your neighbor is what it's saying. So often our lives can be, we don't pay attention to anybody but ourselves. And the Bible is teaching us, pay attention to people by loving them, honoring them, telling them the truth, not lusting after them, giving to them, tell, you know, you know uh, being generous, uh, not being discontent, not envying what they have. We ought to come out of our comfort zones. And so Jesus is, is saying, Come unto Me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. It's a yoke. It's an acting. It demands. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. Right? For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Now, the word easy doesn't mean it's easy to obey. It's just saying it's... The word easy has the idea, to me, like oil in an engine. The engine's running. It's, 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 it's got power. and it's, 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 What am I trying to say? I speak as a fool. It, it's causing heat. It's, it's, hard. it's working hard, but it's it made easier by the oil. And grace makes God's commandments easier, but they're not easy. They still enact us. Keep the Sabbath holy. That's demanding. But when we submit to God and, and, and confess our self-centeredness, then it's easier, isn't it? When you and I accepted the fact it's true, stop kicking it against the pricks, stop fighting against the public opinion, and just... Submit to God, it was easier, wasn't it? His yoke was easy. His burden was light. Yes, it demands of us uniqueness to God. God is unique. It demands of us that we worship Him according to the Scriptures. It demands that we don't take His name in vain. That we keep the Sabbath holy. That we honor those in authority. And so on. But to the believer... It's because we love Him that we keep His commandments. Just like it says in Exodus. And I'm not going in, I'm just kind of bleeding into the next verse. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. you see the context? So it's like John is saying, how do you prove that His commands are not burdensome? That they're not overbearing? Because... By obeying God, you overcome the world. That's what it's saying. It's in the same context. In other words, God, obeying God releases you from being condemned with the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You follow God's Word and you avoid those avenues, those dark alleys of lust and pride, boasting in your possessions. That's what it means. The pride of life is boasting in who you are and what you own and what you have. Where the believer is released, he's freed from being under the condemnation that the world is under. And by God's Word, by loving God and loving one another, we overcome the world. Tremendous help to understand what it means to overcome the world. And we'll touch more upon that next time.
how we need the blood of Jesus to wash us from our sins as we find it. I find my love is so shallow, so inconsistent toward God and toward my brothers and sisters. But there is forgiveness with the Lord and He wants us to come to the Lord's table in acknowledgement that Jesus died for our sins and He means to restore us and to set us on the right path and paths of righteousness for His namesake.